Hey, bro, you ready to shoot this intro video for the Crazy Love series? Yeah, man. Hey, I've uh, been hearing some weird noise in the hall, so if you could grab the door while I grab my book, that'd be great. Yeah, man, I heard that too. No problem. See you there. Today's story is about a father's wildly crazy love. There once was a father who loved his children so much, and his love poured out for them in wildly extravagant ways. And his children were crazy to not love him in return. And as they learned of their father's love, wait, am I the only one hearing that? No. I hear it too. <laughs> Hearing that? No, I hear it too. What is that? <laughs> How is that? It's just so painfully. It's awesome. <laughs> Hearing that? No, I hear it too. What is that? Hey, bro. Always oh, Okay, I think we're going to need to take a break, give him some time, maybe try again about an hour after lunch. Cool. Yeah. I'll grab a bag of chips from the... <laughs> hey, we need to give him some time. He's going nuts. That's not the line. <laughs> He's, He's going line here. Just a moment. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. I'm going to raid JC's secret stash of candy. I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do not clap. That just encourages them. You know, there's certain things you, you like you learn as you go, like, oh yeah, they never stop filming. Like, man, lessons learned. Hey, one of the things we value here at OCC is fun. It's not the highest value on the list, but it's up there because we serve a God of joy. We serve a God of humor. We serve a God who has given us the good gift of laughter. And so we just are okay laughing at ourselves or they're okay laughing at me. I don't know, <laughs> but we're okay having fun laughing at ourselves. We don't take ourselves too seriously here uh, because it's not really about us. It's about him. But there are some things that we value here that we take very, very seriously. God's word, God's glory, God's holiness. And so we put a lot of value, a lot of seriousness on God's word. We believe God's word is our, it's a truth. It is our guide. It is the foundation for us to navigate through life. His word is truth, authoritative truth for us. And so we lean on God's word. And the author of God's word, God himself, says that we need to handle his word rightly. 
Because when we don't, things get out of alignment. And, and so a thoughtful Christian then must put aside some of our cultural uh, beliefs, some of our biases, the things that we have learned, and we've got to come to Scripture with a new lens. Because one of the things that the Bible does for us is that the Bible will reveal to us where we have been more students of the culture than students of God. Where we have learned and let our lives be shaped more by the things around us than by God's spirit at work within us and by God's word given to us. And so a thoughtful Christian has to come to God's word knowing some of that and say, okay, God, reveal to me where I'm out of alignment with you so that I can get into alignment with you. And when we don't do that, when we neglect God's word or when we mishandle God's word, a lot of damage can be done. And we see in our culture that that is nowhere more true than with the topic of sexuality, specifically the role, the relationship between men and women in our culture today. So it's been confused. And to cut through the confusion, we need to get back to the blueprint. To cut through the confusion, we need to go back to God's original purpose and plan for us in his divine design for us. In the book of Genesis, the story of beginnings, we learn that God made the heavens and the earth. That God made the land and the sea. That God made the birds and the animals. God made the light and the dark. And God made us, people. He made men and women. And we read in... Is it coming? We get it? We get it up there. All right. And we read in Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. We're almost got it. All right. That'll go away. The fish in the ski. The fish in the ski. The fish. I don't know. If you see a fish skiing, that would be pretty awesome. Like That's a Dr. Seuss book for it. But we don't see that. So... Is this coming off? Nope. Yep. Oh, 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 almost. There we go. So we see fish and animals. All right. And we're to rule over the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God created us. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. That's a good command. And then fill the earth and subdue it. The beautiful, beautiful there. And so God gave us this command. We see in this Genesis account, this story of beginnings. As the story unfolds right from the start, we see that God has made things that are very different, yet they work together and they complement one another. Heaven and earth, different, but working together as a complement. Land, sea, different, but working together. Night and day, different, working together. And then us, male, female, different, yet to complement and work together. So from the very beginning, we see that men and women were both created in the image of God, both created with an equal sense of dignity and value and worth, but yet similar in so many ways and beautifully different in others. Genesis chapter 2 just continues to unpack this idea for us. It's kind of a recapitulation on that same story. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, don't get hung up on that word helper. We're going to unpack that in a moment. 
So now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and fish that ski. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Things like aardvark and quokka and kangaroo. So the man gave names to all the livestock. Names like Larry and Joe and Bob and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Labradoodles and golden retrievers just wouldn't do. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, probably on the couch watching Sunday afternoon golf. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his mommy and daddy and he's united to his wife and they become one flesh. And we'll talk about that in a later message in this series. But we see right here from the beginning this beautiful, beautiful design. Different yet similar. And notice early on, right? The woman is taken from the man's side. Not from his head that she would stand over him, rule over him, dominate him. Not from his feet that he would dominate her. From his side that she would stand alongside him. They would stand side by side. This beautiful picture of how God creates man and woman. Fellas, this should humble us a bit. Like it, It seems that many throughout history have gotten this part of the story wrong. Thinking that somehow the man is elevated in this part. That the woman is given as like a maidservant. Given to just make meals and do laundry and stuff. No, 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 no. God looks at all of his creation. And he calls it good. He just keeps good, 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 beautiful, awesome. Oh, this is fantastic. It's good, 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 good. Then he gets to the man and he's like, that ain't good. He ain't going to get this done. God looks and says there's this divine mission to go and conquer and subdue and rule over. And he's just not going to be able to get that done on his own. This is not man is great and so I give him a slave. This is man ain't going to be able to get it done without somebody helping him. And this word suitable helper that comes up. The word helper here, ladies don't bristle at this. Let's dig into the Hebrew a little bit here. Just one word for you. Azer. Everyone say Azer. No, no, no. I said everyone. That includes you online. I I see you. You're sitting on your couch. Everyone say Azer. Azer. Very good. That's one of the easier Hebrew words. It doesn't quite get the guttural Flemishness. Azer. This is the word for helper used of Eve here. This is also the word used several times throughout the Old Testament. For God. When Israel is in trouble and can't get it done on its own and is desperately in need of help, God is Israel's Azar. Ladies, gals, women, this is not a devaluing kind of helper word. This is an elevation of who you are in the grand, beautiful design. You are the Azar. Without you, The mission is not accomplished. Without you, it's not good. Men be humble. Women take a little pride. This is a beautiful picture that unfolds here. And we see this picture unfolding theologically, biologically. This truth that women and men are different 
Very different, yet similar in so many ways, yet wonderfully complementary. Designed to be together as partners in this mission of God. We see this in life, right? The, the way this plays out. Our chromosomes are different. Our hair is different. The, the hair, where it grows, how it, it shifts, it moves. When you get young guys, just know it's going to like move. There's going to come a day for you, right? And, and like body shapes, sizes, strength, all these things are different between men and women. In fact, if we dig into this, we see that male and female fetuses differ in their testosterone levels as early as eight weeks of gestation for the fetus. Word fetus. It's kind of weird. The word fetus is simply Latin for baby. So that baby at simply eight weeks in the womb has a different level of testosterone depending on whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. And these testosterone levels begin to shape everything about their behavior. Things that we used to think were reserved only for like sociocultural dynamics. The games that boys and girls play, the, the toys they would choose. We, we used to think that, oh, that was determined only by their environment. But what we've learned from modern research is that these things are determined by our nature, by, by what's in us, not just what happens around us. That boys based on their testosterone level, choose different kinds of games than girls do. That boys, based on their testosterone level, choose different kind of toys than girls do. It's not just what's around us. It's what's hardwired into us. It's not just a sociocultural thing. It's how God has created us. And when we talk gender... We, we got to unpack that word a little bit here. What does gender mean? Well, gender is how we live out our biological sex. Um, gender is how we live in light of the equipment we were assigned. All right? So it's how we act in light of being either male or female. As Christopher West notes in his book, Theology of the Body for Beginners, this Prefix gen simply means to produce or give birth to. We see this in words like genetics and generous and genesis and genealogy and genitals. And this prefix for gender. Your gender is based on the manner in which you were designed to generate new life. The, the, the way your body is created, designed, formed to generate new life, well, that will determine your gender. These things are inseparably synced up like that. Think of it this way. A man's body doesn't make sense on its own. And a woman's body does not make sense on her. Well, when it comes to this beautiful picture of sexuality and reproduction, one needs the other. Either is incomplete. Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying today. This does not mean for single people that they are incomplete, insufficient, and lacking. No, 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 no. Because in God's great, beautiful design, there is, that's a, an enormously important place. And we'll unpack that in a coming week. But, but just know for this picture of be fruitful, multiply, only one ain't going to get it done. We need one another, and we're designed to work together. If, if we look just at male and female bodies, that they are complete in themselves. Like the male body, complete in all of its systems, but one. Female body, complete all of its systems, but one. 
the reproductive system. Every cell in a man's body has 46 chromosomes. Every cell in a woman's body has 46 chromosomes, except one in each of them. Sperm cell in males, ovum in the female, only 23. They're halfway there. We need the other. And when we think about this, this biological design that God has created and formed for us, it becomes beautifully poetic as we begin to think about the role each person plays in that design. God designed men and women to fit together in this beautiful physical way. The man's role outside of his body as he enters into the woman, the woman's role within her, she welcomes him in and then new life begins there and she nurtures this life for months within her. It's actually this beautiful picture giving a nod to how the Trinitarian God desires to birth new life in us. Well, what an incredibly beautiful picture. And we need one another, men, women, distinct from one another in many ways, but dependent upon one another in these certain ways. So we have similar, different, together, interdependent on one another. And God's word, we can sum up several, like dozens of passages. I'll just sum it up with this. God's instruction to us is don't blur the lines. Don't blur the lines. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to have some things that get a little wonky with sin. He says, just don't blur the lines. As Peter Kreeft says so eloquently, says women really are superior to men. At being women. And men really are superior to women. At being men. And we are wise to lean into that truth. That's the way God created us. But we know. We know, we know. Sin Messes all that up. Here we have God has created, God has created man and woman. And he places them in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden. And God says, here it is. You have this garden and you have all the wildness. There are wild beasts to tame. Go live the adventure. Tame the beasts. Climb the mountains. Climb the trees. Eat the food. Eat whatever you want. Except this one thing. Don't eat that thing. That thing's off limits. That thing's to remind you that you are not in charge. You are, you are a manager, not creator. But everything else, live it up. Enjoy it. Have fun. Go swim in the waters. Lay on the beach. Do whatever you want. It's yours. And there, in the midst of that, the serpent slithers in and begins to whisper to Eve. And he entices her with the food. Eve takes takes a bite. Rebels against God. And then offers it to Adam. And Adam takes part, eats with her, and joins the rebellion. And then do you know, do you remember what happens next? Adam and Eve, there, up to that point, they are naked and unashamed. They're naked and it's great. It's the first nudist colony. They're, they're there and it's all the way it's supposed to be. And then as soon as they eat, they realize their nakedness and they're ashamed of it. So they go to hide. Adam goes to the weeds. He starts taking plants and, and he starts taking leaves. He starts making for himself. And she says, Eve says, what, what, what are you doing? He says, well, somebody's got to wear the plants in the family. And come on, you saw it coming. I'm a dad. Just wait for the joke. And then God shows up on the scene and he wanders through. And do you remember... Who God calls for? Adam. Do you remember the question he has? Adam, what is this thing you have done? Adam, what did you do? 
It's important to know. The question is not to Eve. Eve, why did you listen to that serpent? Eve, why were you so deceived? Eve, what were you thinking? Eve, why did you give it to him? Eve, the question is not directed at Eve. It comes to Adam. Adam, what is this thing you have done? Adam, my boy, why? It, It seems... That even before sin enters the picture, there is an understanding of a differentiation of roles in the home. That the responsibility was on Adam, not Eve. As Adam stood by and allowed it to happen, the responsibility was on him, not her. That doesn't mean Eve gets off like, oh, okay, no problem. I'm okay. No, like she starts to take responsibility for what she did, but the role of Adam was to lead in his home. We see this played out throughout the New Testament. I mean, this is the place that Jesus and Paul and Peter continue to come back to again and again and again, this Genesis creation account with a headship of the male in the home. Now, we're going to unpack that in just a moment. So, ladies, if that rubs you the wrong way, don't bristle just yet. Hold on. But let me speak to the men real quick. You guys, we see here that even before the fall, in God's good and beautiful design from the beginning, the responsibility for the spiritual climate of your home is yours. It's on you. And I don't say this to shame you or belittle you. I say this to invite you to step up. The spiritual climate of your home is on your shoulders then. Our world is desperate for us to lead well in that role. Our families are desperate for us to lead well in that role. So that means we don't get to abdicate that. We, we don't get to blame other people. Well, the children's ministry. Well, the student ministry. Well, that lead guy at the church. No. It's on you. Listen, we are here to supplement and to assist and help train you up, to help provide for you. We want to come alongside and partner with you. That's why we spent a significant portion of the budget of this church for children's programming and student ministry. And where we have half a building dedicated to that. But that's not to take your place. That's so that we can reaffirm what they're hearing from you. Well, listen, my, my kids, JC mentioned it earlier, this CIY superstar and move for the younger ones and the high school ones. My kids have participated in those. My kids will be participating in a high school move this summer. They are stoked to do so. My, my two, well, my boys in eighth grade, but he will be going to high school. He and Lydia are excited to participate because they saw what it was for Abby when she was in high school and she got to participate. But they both know what superstar was like when they were little, and it was awesome. But listen, we don't send our kids there so they could learn it all there and then... Okay, my job's done. No, we send it there so that there, with all the excitement of all the other kids and the ministry that happens there, it can reaffirm what they're hearing in the home on a daily basis from their father and mother. And listen, the responsibility doesn't mean that I make the decisions and Jen's not part of it. No, it's a partnership together. But the role, the responsibility lands on me. The primary disciple maker in my home is me. Gentlemen, if you're the father of your home, the primary disciple maker in your home is you. And what we do here is we want to come along and, and equip you and supplement you and help you. But that also means that when events like that come up, things like CIY Superstar and Move and Believe and all that, then when you're looking at a sports schedule and a church schedule, you give priority to the things of God. Because when your child stands in front of the Savior at the end of their days, he's not going to wonder how good of a soccer player were you? How many home runs did you hit? He's going to say, did you follow me? And part 
Well, that answer is going to depend on how you lead them at this age in their lives. Too many of us are choosing too many things that compete with the church instead of sending our kids to draw near to Jesus. And we got to change that. That's on us, man. No more passivity. Let's lead and let's lead well. And if you're not sure how to do it, we want to help you do that. No shame, no blame. Listen, everybody's got to start somewhere. And so we want to come alongside you and equip you and empower you. And if you need help doing that, you just reach out to us. And we'll walk with you to help you, help your kids and your wife and yourself walk with Jesus. That's why we're here. So we see this picture of headship. We see Ephesians Ephesians 5, when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, the, the fifth chapter of that book, by the way, when he wrote it, it was just a letter. It didn't have chapters and verses. Those were added later, just so we know. And so, but looking at the fifth chapter of that, he describes this headship. And, and let's make sure we get this right, because the headship in the home is not the man is in charge, the master of the house, the wife is a slave. It's not a dominating. It's not a domineering. It's not this superiority thing. It's to look like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He took a cross and died for us. So this male headship looks a whole lot more like a cross than a king's seat. Gentlemen, for you to lead as the head of the home means you die to yourself. You surrender your privileges. You surrender your priorities. You surrender the things that you want and you desire for the good of your wife and your children. That's headship in the home means you are surrendering and serving and loving and elevating them so that Christ may be elevated and his glory may shine out. That's what headship in the home looks like. So we see this headship show up in the church as well. We, we see that both men and women are created in the divine image of God with equal status and worth and dignity and value, but some different roles. Now we see that once somebody comes to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit invades their life and empowers them and gifts them to do ministry in different ways. And these spiritual gifts are to be used within the church for the glory of God, the strengthening of the church, the building up of the body, and for their own joy even. We have several texts in the New Testament that you may be familiar with that seem to limit what women can do. They seem to put all these boundaries and parameters. But what we actually see is when Paul says things like, I don't permit the women to teach, but I do want them in the room to learn, with all these different places that women show up in places like it's actually not keeping women down it's bringing women up they're invited into spaces and places that they were never before allowed into it's an elevation and an empowering of women in fact we just take a tertiary look through scripture just real quick we see that there's this ferocity for god that comes from some of these women and god used women who were serving and submitted to him in so many ways. And Deborah served as a judge at a time when Israel was in turmoil and it was a wreck. And God looked, and kind of like Genesis 1, man just ain't going to get it done. Let's put her in charge. And she was a really good judge, by the way. We, we see people like Esther protecting God's people, prophets like Miriam and Hola. We see women in the New Testament active in the life of the church, of the early church, prophesying and praying in the public gathering together. We, we see that one of the first evangelists, the first evangelist was a woman. The first person to tell anybody that Jesus rose from the grave was Mary. Mary Magdalene. You're not familiar with her story. Mary had a pretty sordid backstory. So God used a woman and that one of all women to be the first one to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus to anyone else. We see this beautiful picture that God continues to use women in his story. 
Women like Lydia leading and serving in the early church, a church that probably would not have survived without her sacrificing her wealth to make sure that they could do so. Again and again and again, we have women servants and leaders in the early church. And there's all these places that we see women are invited into this circle. But of all of that, of all these women who were ferocious for God, the Bible still draws some limits. Still says there's a couple places that are reserved for men. And it's this picture of headship in the home, picture of headship in the church consistent with what we see throughout scripture of all the places that women would serve in the old testament there was one role they never had and that was priest the role of regularly proclaiming the truth of god to lead people and to set direction similar role in the new testament would be the lead minister of a church we see in the new testament of all the places women are invited into the circles they can swim in there's one that's set off limits That's the role of elder. Now, there are people who love God and have a just a very devout faith, and they pursue him, and they're brilliant, and I love some of these people, and they would disagree with us on this. But as your elders, your church leaders have studied these passages over the last year, couple years, and we've poured through articles and studies and scripture and scripture and scripture, where we've landed is that these two roles, the role of elder and lead minister, seem reserved for men. Now, I want to let you know, similar to how it is in the male headship in the home, what that looks like in the church. This is not a position of privilege and power. I get to lead and I get to make decisions. Look at me. I want to tell you about the elders of your church. The men who serve in that role are some of the godliest men I have ever met in my life. And they serve not out of privilege and power, but out of humility and a divine responsibility to shepherd and lead and guard and protect and grow this church for God's glory. They give of themselves time that most of you wouldn't even, can't even imagine. And they get no pay for it. They get no privilege for it they serve and they take it on the chin these men serve with a cross not the seat of a king and it's a beautiful thing so when scripture tells us to honor those men they're worthy i've gotten to know them in some pretty personal intimate ways they're worthy church and i hope and i pray that it's the the lead minister in this church, that I am living up to their standard. And I'm leaning into that. That that's what this should look like in the church. Now what that means is there are a lot of places for you women to serve that are not off limits. There's a lot of things that women can and should do with the gifting God has given you to make his church be all she should be. But we know we know sin has messed all that up as well. We, we know that sometimes we'll look at this and say, well, you know, hold on, hold on. Maybe, maybe, maybe when Jesus was choosing his 12, right, because there were no women invited into that circle, that maybe it's because Jesus didn't want to upset cultural norms. 
I don't know that we're reading the same Bible at that moment because Jesus had no problem upsetting any other norm of his day. And someone said, well, no, no, that's because Jesus thought women were inferior. Hold on, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the Marys and the Marthas who joined with them and were friends with them. Jesus had women in his tribe. He just didn't invite them into that circle because it was hearkening back to the created order at the beginning. But certainly, they were empowered. But then we see we, we see how sin just messes all this up. Genesis 3, the, the, the serpent is there and God says, yeah, you're going to think you're winning this thing, but eventually there's one who's going to crush your head. We see from the very beginning, the third chapter of Scripture, the first glimpse of the gospel of Jesus. It's beautiful. And then God looks at the man and says, by the way, your work that you would have enjoyed is now going to be laborious. And he looks at the woman and he says, and by the way, childbearing, that's going to be laborious too. And I'm just saying as a dude, I've been in the room three times. I will choose my labor over her labor any day of the week. I'm just saying. You got the better end of that deal. And then God looks at the woman and says, and you will desire to control your husband, and he's going to rule over you. So what is originally designed to complement is now competing for control, which produces conflict and confusion. Oh, we know that. Every married couple knows. Like, and there are just times when you're trying to have a, just a simple conversation and the other person thinks you've said something. You, do not look at your spouse when I say this, okay? Like, look up here at me. You're just going to, because you're going to have one of those days like on the way home, right? But you know, like you've said something and it's like, that is not what I'm, that is exactly what you said. My feelings are hurt. They're like, well, that's dumb. And then, oh, that's not a good way to respond. And then, Genesis 3, okay? Like right there. We've lived Genesis 3. Any parent knows it's between just their daughters and sons. If you get, you know, boom, Genesis 3. It's there. It's alive. It's unfortunate. And we see this whole thing of desire and control, desire and control. Genesis chapter 4, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, sin wants to rule over him. And desires control. He's got to master that. Desire control is said as these competing forces, like in the beginning of Scripture. Desire control. Let, let me unpack what the Hebrew like unpacks for us in this. It, it, it basically says that when Eve has allowed sin to have the upper hand in her life, and, and when Eve is out of sync with God, then Eve is not going to desire to compliment her husband and serve and surrender and love him and partner with him. She's going to desire to control him and rule over him. And similarly, when Adam is out of sync with God and has allowed sin to have the upper hand in his life, his desire will be to manipulate and control his wife instead of surrendering and sacrificing and lovingly leading and elevating her. So we just get it wrong. Like on this side of Genesis chapter 3, we, we live on the wrong side of the fall and the wrong side of eternity yet, right? Like we're in this stuck space between the beauty of the beginning and the beauty of how it will be forever. And we're in this tweener spot. It's like that weird place of puberty, spiritually speaking. And so as we're there in this Genesis 3 situation, it should come as no surprise to us, church, that we see broken marriages, that, that we see competition in marriage, that we see manipulation and abuse and, and unwanted affections and power struggles and abandonment and same-sex attraction and gender confusion. Like, that's not new to this era. That hasn't just sprung up on the surface recently. That's been there since the beginning. It's the brokenness of the fall. It's the aftertaste of the fruit. 
instead of submitting to one another out of love, as Ephesians 5 would instruct us, instead of that, we vie for control and power. Sadly, the church has not been immune to this. There were those at some point in history who began using scripture to manipulate women, keeping them down, using the Bible in an almost weaponized way to tell women that there were certain places and things and stuff that was off limits that they were somehow inferior to men. Listen, I just want to speak into that real quickly. Sisters, I want you to hear me loud and clear on this. There is not one verse in scripture that says that you are under the authority of every man. It's just not there. The Bible does not say that. If you have been taught that, if you've learned that, you were lied to. You are not under the authority of every man. You're under the authority of Jesus Christ. Your place is not just in the kitchen. It's not just in the home. Now, that's not a dig at stay-at-home moms. My wife was a stay-at-home mom for a while. It's a beautiful thing. It's a noble thing. It's just not the only thing you're allowed to do. You can go conquer in the business world, and that's awesome. You, you can go. That's your thing. Scripture does not prohibit that. Now, let me speak to the wives real quickly. Wives, you are not your husband's slave. You're not a slave in the kitchen. You're not a slave in the family. You're not a slave in the bedroom. Scripture nowhere allows the husband, to belittle his wife and make her feel inferior. You are not his servant in that regard. That is not what Scripture teaches. And so, guys, I want to speak to us one more time. If we have gotten that wrong, if we've mishandled Scripture, and maybe some of you were misled and you believe this, and I don't think this is most of the guys, but my experience tells me there's probably somebody in here or somebody online listening today who needs to hear this word. If you have used the Bible to make your wife inferior, to manipulate her, and to feel like your slave, the time is right now to repent and apologize and choose a new way forward. Set her free. We are made to compliment, to compliment in God's beautiful design. And, and here's the reality. Too many women have been damaged and wounded by a dysfunctional kind of masculinity in our culture in the world, but even in the church. And so we should have a crazy level of compassion for those who have been abused and those who've been victims of misogyny, for those who've been mistreated. But we can't allow what is happening in our world to continue to happen because for some of them, and I appreciate where they come from, I appreciate the pain of their experience, but to right the wrong, they're trying to flip the script and and we get phrases like all men are pigs and men are evil and men will only use their power to dominate and that's just not true and it's not okay. To, To elevate women, they're devaluing men and that's not the right answer, it's not the right response and so we see that so many of these people are approaching it with this like revisionist history thing to try and remove any structure that might hint that a guy has power over a woman and so they approach the bible that way and many women who are christians come with trying to fit the bible into their way of wanting it to be with a revisionist perspective that's not altogether different than the the men who they don't like have used it to manipulate them neither is the answer neither is okay so on one hand we have men oppressing women on the other we have women devaluing men and that's not okay we, we have this idea that either it's sameness or it's superiority. The chauvinists would say, well, we're made different, and so the man is superior. The woman would say, oh, no, 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 we're made the same, so we're, it's sameness. And we get it wrong. Church, instead of following a culture of rigid traditionalism or radical progressivism, we need to choose God's third way, the 
way of the cross is the way of Christ. The way to right the wrongs is not to pursue some new twist on it. The way to pursue the way to right the wrongs is to pursue the way it was originally intended to be. We can, we should, we must wholeheartedly agree with our culture that the abuse of women needs to stop, it needs to end, it is real, it happens, and we as a church should be working against that. But we disagree on the solution. Telling men to act like women and women to be like men is not the solution. That goes against our biology, that goes against our creation, that goes against our creator. That's not the way. God's word, God's church, God's people, we, we should stand against male domination, we should stand against gender confusion. With great compassion, we should understand where people are coming from. Not looking to pick a fight, but looking to free them. But we must choose the third way, the way of the cross. The way that points to Jesus. Where we surrender ourselves to him and to one another. Where we seek to serve one another. Where we seek to sacrifice for the best of one another, where we seek to stand side by side, partnering with one another in the ministry of the gospel for the glory of God and the betterment of the world. We must seek to elevate Jesus as daughters and sons of the Most High King, living out our divine design, similar but beautifully different, complementing, not competing. We must choose not to try to to elevate ourselves, but to elevate one another. And in so doing, ultimately elevate Christ and Christ alone. Church, if I were to sum it all up this way, which I will, I said because God made men and women to complement one another, we would be crazy to choose to compete with, to choose conflict, to choose to confuse it all. Let's live out our divine design as we stand side by side for the glory of God, to elevate Jesus and to love one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are not a God of chaos and disorder, but you are a God of order and process and systems. And God, you have given us a beautiful system between men and women, a system to generate new life. And we need one another. God, our world would put us in conflict. Our world would put us into chaos. Our world would throw us into confusion and competition. But you, you restore us to a beautiful new way. The way it was intended to be at the beginning. Where we stand side by side. Working with one another as partners, as complements. God, may we be people who speak that truth, who live that truth with gentleness and grace, God. May we speak with the bold authority of your word and all the gentle grace of the cross to a world that is so confused. And God, may you get all the glory and honor and praise at the end of it. God, help us to live aligned with you. It's in Jesus' name.